At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Throw your hands up in the air. Honey Badger don't care. Yeah, Honey Badger don't care. Here we are at the Honey Badger Baltic Conference in Riga, Latvia. Oh yeah, it's really cool. Let's check in with Stacy. Max, today is a good day to talk about mad cows and mad men because these are good lessons for why we Bitcoin, why we need Bitcoin, and why Honey Badger don't care about these mad men and, and mad cows running our world. First of all, you know, a lot of people disagree about uh, climate change, what's causing it, why, why, why the Arctic is melting and things like that. But no plans have ever actually materialized to fix it. So here we have Bill Gates, part of the intellectual property, you know, wielding sort of billionaire class. And he has an idea, the Bill Gates, this Bill Gates funded chemical cloud could help stop global warming. Fires burning across the Amazon rainforest have renewed the debate about solutions to climate change. Bill Gates is backing the first high altitude experiment of one radical approach called solar geoengineering. It's meant to mimic the effects of a giant volcanic eruption. Thousands of planes would fly at high altitudes, spraying millions of tons of particles around the planet to create a massive chemical cloud that would cool the surface. You know, um, when I first heard the term chemtrails, I laughed, <laughs> said, oh, that's the one conspiracy theory too far. Alex Jones is crazy. Well, here's Bill Gates spewing chemtrails into the atmosphere. <laughs> Uh, here's a twice-convicted predatory monopolist who also supports genetically modified organisms and you know, any genocidal side effects they may have, asking the world to accept, well, what would be the analogy? Let's see. You're being surveyed upon 24 hours a day by his technology, and you can't see the sun. Um, prison, that's it. Bill Gates has reinvented prison for profit. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, so this geoengineering, by the way, could, they warn, eradicate blue skies forever. Uh, it, it could alter regional weather patterns in a way we don't understand. And according to Stephen Gardner, who is the author of The Perfect Moral Storm, The Ethical Tragedy of Climate Change, he says these consequences might be horrific. They might involve things like mass famine, mass flooding, drought of kinds that will affect every, will affect very large populations. Well, you know, uh, Bill Gates is a guy that is lauded as a smart guy who reads a book every two days and is worth billions of dollars. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, that would be like applauding cancer, right? I mean, cancer is a runaway growth that studies our cellular structure, attacks it, it kills us, we're dead. You know, Bill Gates and many like him are in the death uh, as a service business. 
and it, they're doing a very effective job. You know, once artificial intelligence can begin to read our minds, that's kind of the event horizon, that's the singularity, that's the end game. Uh, well, it's also like Nassim Taleb, well, he was very against Monsanto, for example, for those sort of principles that we don't know the unintended consequences and the risk just isn't worth it. They'll, you know, Bill Gates will say we have to stop climate change at any cost right now because it's death sort and we need help. Uh, Bob Geldof said the same thing about Africa, feeding Africa. We have to give them Monsanto uh, products because no matter what, they need to be eat today. And who cares about the long-term consequences of depriving them of ever being able to have their own agricultural products again in the future with these uh, terminator seeds? We, we need today. Like, let's address the problem today. You know, a lot of our mentality in, in Bitcoin is low time preference. In in the rest of the world, in this fiat world, it's high time preference. If we could just get through today, you know, maybe tomorrow we'll still be here. Well, this is the equivalent of like me too for billionaires, right? So Bill Gates was the richest guy in the world. Then Jeff Bezos became the richest guy in the world. So he feels violated. So he said, you know, I've got to make another 20 billion really quick. How can I do it? I'll spew chemtrails into the atmosphere and I'll kill like 3 billion people, but I'll make another 20 billion. I'm Bill Gates. I'm the richest man in the because world. Because he has the intellectual property on this geoengineering or whatever this chemical cloud mixture is and whether or not, who, who gets to then control when you are allowed to see the blue sky and, and things like that. But another idea was also presented this week, and this is from Sweden. They often come up with wacky ideas, but this is a certainly one. Uh, scientists suggest eating human flesh to fight climate change. Stockholm School of Economics professor, of course, and researcher Magnus Soderlund reportedly said he believes eating human meat derived from dead bodies might be able to help save the human race if only a world society were to, quote, awaken to the idea. So this is woke capitalism presented by an economist who believes that eating humans might solve the problem of the methane emissions from industrial farming. Of course, this has already been tried in history in Papua New Guinea, and those people went mad because of the prions that gave them the equivalent of mad cow disease for humans. Right, well, Swedes famously inhale cow flatulence to try as a um, condiment to their uh, smoked herring. <laughs> I heard from a guy named Stephen Pally. And, um, you know, oh yeah, cannibalism is definitely the Donner Party as a service. Cannibalism as a service, brought to you by Steve Gates in Sweden. I get a Nobel Prize for that, I'm sure, you know. He, he believes that con cons conservative taboos against cannibalism can change over time. That hissing sound you hear, by the way, is a cow actually flatulating at the moment. So the Swedes are in town and they're <laughs> feasting gregariously and gorgeously on some nice uh, cow flatulence. So cannibalism leads to mad human disease. It leads to madness in humans. It also led to madness in cows because cows, when they were fed cow products, they ate other cows, and it spread to mad cow disease. And it's a 100% so fatal disease caused by industrial farming. Uh, here I want to talk about this mad cow disease applied to the, as an analogy to our financial system, because here they're suggesting, on the one hand, you know, we need to feed the world, so we're going to feed cows, cows, and that causes mad cow disease. But then, because of climate change and all this industrial farming, we're going to feed humans to other humans, like a Soylent Green sort of uh, response to climate change. And we're going to send a big chemical cloud up 
like the ideas are crazier and crazier. So part of this whole global Ponzi scheme, predatory capitalism, is we need these negative interest rates, they say. And the negative interest rates, I, I'm going to show you, is the equivalent of the mad cow disease because you're feeding capital to capitalism. It's eating itself. Capitalism has to eat itself to survive, we're told. So questioning Lagarde as gross interest income in Germany heads towards zero. So this is a guest post on mishtalk.com, and it's Eric Dorr, Director of Economics at the IESEG School of Management in Paris. And he's looking at the results of the negative interest rates so far. Remember, Mario Draghi left the head of the ECB with cutting rates further and promising QE for as long as it takes. Now Christine Lagarde is coming in. We don't know what her policies will be towards this, but we're assuming she would not have received the job had she not promised to feed capital to capitalism. And this guy looked at the money lost and gained in, across the Eurozone because of quantitative easing, because of negative interest rates. And as we've pointed out in Kai's report, it's been a transfer of um, savings, capital taken from savers and pensioners, and transferred to debtors. And he, he's added up the numbers, and what he found was that the monetary policy conducted after 2012 in Europe has implied a cumulative loss of gross interest income of 158 billion euros just for German households until, up until 2019. On the other side of the balance sheet, they found um, a German borrowing households saved a cumulative 99 billion of interest expenses. The net result is a loss of 58 billion euros to German households. Right, humans are pretty stupid. So, you know, in antiquity, prehistory days, the uh, old civilizations used to throw children onto bonfires to try to appease the gods. Yes. So here we're going into negative interest rates to appease the financial gods of the central banks. And they're sacrificing our children's, our children's future. The children will have no future because all to create the Ponzi scheme today, you need to feed capitalism with capital to keep the Ponzi scheme going, which means negative interest rates or 0% interest rates, to force consumption into the present so that people have the free Ponzi money to keep consuming in the present because their time preference is all messed up. Uh, but the result will be in 20 years probably this Generation Z that's just becoming adults now, uh, they'll, they'll, have, they'll have nothing. They'll be, they'll be probably, they'll be, that's what our friend Roy Sabag over at Gold Money and Monet has been talking about, that negative interest rates are telegraphing a drop in population. Uh, if you look at forced consumption in the present to feed the Ponzi scheme, that means you've got this generation will have to be sacrificed. And so, you know, humans have not really psychologically evolved much from the days when they just used to outright butcher children for the gods. So they're butchering the Generation Z for the Ponzi gods. Uh, and Bill Gates is there, you know, naked in a grass skirt, shaking a skull, rattle bone, 
hoping that the sky turns green or whatever that he's doing, and he's a total psychopath, twice convicted predatory monopolist. So fiat itself is an experiment, and it's a very new experiment. We've had 5,000 years of gold, and it's proven it's real, and it's, it's a store of value. And because it's a store of value, it operated for 5,000 years as a global unit of account for global trade. Periods of globalization and deglobalization happened around it, but since 1971, it's been an experiment. All of these things that you've seen since, all of the huge gapping of the wealth and income gap, all of the, all of the Monsantos, all of the intellectual properties, all these Bill Gates sort of experiments are only possible of pulling forward all of this, like the next 30, 40 years have been pulled forward. We already consumed the next 30 or 40 years. What we need to do is like go into cryogenic chambers and just like stop living for the next 30, 40 years, essentially austerity. But here we have the, 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 these experiments, the results, like with Monsanto, we didn't know until 20 years later of these glyphosates that they were going to destroy all the bees, that they were going to kill all the bees. Like the results didn't appear then. And then what do we do? Oops, like now we need fake bees, like these like artificial uh, you know, nanotechnology bees that go around allegedly. This is what one of the ideas for resolving this problem of killing these through an experiment. Right. Well, okay. Uh, you know, the ancient Egyptians left behind pyramids and Wall Street's leaving behind pyramid schemes. Thanks, Bill Gates. Stay tuned. Uh, Going to take a little break. Come back with much more right after this. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to speak with Stefan Levera, all the way from Australia. Stefan, welcome to the Kaiser Report. Thank you for having me, Max. That's great. Uh, you made the big trip here to uh, Riga, Latvia, for the Honey Badger Conference. From uh, hey, when did the Bitcoin wave hit Australia? Uh, so, I mean, there were meetup groups and stuff going in like 2012 and 2013 and so on. Uh, but obviously, the space got very confused as well with all the kind of blockchain technology and you know, coins as they were. And now there's a bit of a pushback with Bitcoin now. So there are we are starting to see some more proper Bitcoiner groups sprouting up around the country as well. So all right, yeah. now your podcast is a must-listen to podcast. It's quite quite popular. And how long have you been doing the podcast? Uh, about a year and two or three months at this point. So right, and and. Um, so I, is it fair to say that you're an Austrian economist? That's kind of what you, you lean that way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would say I'm not a professional economist, but I'm a student of Austrian economics, and I've been studying it uh, over half my life at this point. So I've just been reading a lot of you know, articles and books and watching talks from the Mises Institute, essentially, and I think that's where a lot of my education came from. And guys like Bob Murphy and Tom Woods as well were big uh, influences on my own thought. And how does uh, Bitcoin fit that model? Oh, absolutely. For me, I think understanding from an Austrian economic framework, you can understand more about why the fixed money supply is not necessarily a problem and also why what in the kind of normal mainstream economic world where they think of our oh, deflation and hoarding and so on, whereas I think an Austrian has the tools to rebut some of those ideas or at least to understand why they're not necessarily such a problem like they are in the quote-unquote mainstream economics world. You know, Stefan, we seem to be uh, in a period of history where insanity is being normalized. Uh, so economic insanity with e uh, negative interest rates, um, politics seems mad, um, and, and Bitcoin is entering onto the stage during this time. 
Um, is it the antidote to all of this insanity out there? Uh, and is that, was that purely accidental or are there are larger forces at work? <laughs> Bitcoin fixes this, Max, as I'm sure you know. Uh, so look, ultimately, it is a crazy speculation. We are living through this world of negative interest rates. I think the most uh, cohesive explanation that I've heard around this is essentially that it's greater fool theory, right? Uh, and as bonds have that inverse price and uh, interest rate yield uh, dynamic, as people are continually purchasing bonds, they're thinking, oh, I can buy this bond and sell it onto somebody else. That's just pushing the yield into further and further negative territory. But uh, this is all in an, in an underlying environment where credit is much more cheap and much more available than it would be under a hard money, such as a gold or a Bitcoin standard, where we would see much less credit available and we would see more of a true pricing for... So bonds are in a bubble. I think so. The bonds are in a bubble. Absolutely. Uh, fiat money is in a bubble. Uh, stocks appear overvalued, and they're in a bubble. Uh, one of the few things out there that's not in a bubble would be Bitcoin. It's funny that the mainstream economists like Noriel Rabini or Paul Krugman, you know, they refer to Bitcoin as a speculative instrument looking for greater fools. It's a bubble. And yet it's an answer to the bubbles. Okay, bonds in the US and in the Great Britain have not been in this level of overvaluation in 300 years. That's how high that bubble is. Uh, in Australia, what's the mood there with the government toward Bitcoin and crypto? What, what's, what are we hearing out of that? Out of that? And how, what's the general um, um, perception of it? Because you know we, we don't talk to a lot of folks from Australia. So what, what, what's the mood there? I would say it, there's still a a fair amount of confusion around blockchain technology and so on. There's not necessarily an understanding of Bitcoin as hard money, Bitcoin as a solution to some of the problems uh, as a potential parallel financial system that could be built on top of Bitcoin as an answer to the problems that have been caused by our government's failing. You know, the, uh, Australia's been in the economic expansion for 20-something years, up until recently. I think it may have just, for the first time in decades, entered into a, a downtick on the GDP. Uh, housing has been, I think it's fair to say housing's been in a bubble. Um, so in Australia, there's no incentive to look at something new because it's, the system's worked for decades. Absolutely. Right? So there's a bit of, um, you know, uh, lethargy. Uh, on behalf of the population. But I think that might be changing now. And um, your podcast, what are the demographics of it? Is it? It's global and it goes out most. Who's listening to your podcast do you, do you, mostly? Typically, a lot of my listeners are actually in the U.S., funnily enough. Um, but I would say it's typically sort of mid-20s up through to maybe 50s, let's say. It tends to be male, tends to be financial uh, sort of people or technological, technological uh, tech savvy people and developers who are interested about Bitcoin. So that's sort of, I guess, in a nutshell, some of the demographics, if you will, of my podcast. And how did you audience. come into Bitcoin? You know, what's your journey there mm. preceding? How did you get into this? Yeah, so for me, uh, I, like most people, the first time I heard it, I thought, you know, it was like Slashdot article in maybe 2011 or 12. I disregarded it at that point. And then it was only in late 2012, funnily enough, I read an article by Eric Voorhees. And that was my moment where I came to Bitcoin and it just, to me, it was like, whoa, this is amazing. This is incredible. And so obviously having been inter interested in Austrian economics and monetary theory for some time, I was obviously already skeptical of central banking and of fiat money. 
And so I was already very amenable to the idea of Bitcoin. And then once I saw the potential, I just went down that rabbit hole and I've just not been able to stop thinking about Bitcoin since. And so I've been <laughs> learning and learning and learning. And I mean, as you know, it's a very, very deep rabbit hole and you can get stuck down different uh, pathways. But ultimately for me, that caused me the, to then go and really go back and study some of that Bitcoin, uh, the, the Austrian monetary theory a little bit further to try and tighten my understanding and obviously uh, interacting with guys like Pierre Richard, Safedine, uh, and some of these other guys who were kind of explaining it from an Austrian point of view, that was essentially where I, I gained some of my own understanding that I'm now in some sense passing on to my own podcast listeners. Right, so um, someone once said, and it could have been me, uh, that you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. What do you think of that comment? I 100% agree with that. And I think what we have seen over the last few years in Bitcoin is particularly certain companies who think that they could control it and think that they could be the ones to dictate where the protocol goes and also dictate how we all interact with it. But in reality, what we're seeing is Bitcoin is like this, and as Safedean would say, it's, it's sort of like an economic reality that is asserting itself onto the world. And we have to kind of adapt ourselves to how Bitcoin is. And one way to think of that is we are to some extent seeing a lowering of our time preference. So where in the past we may have been more impatient, we may have made more impulsive decisions, now Bitcoiners are learning to save more, they are learning to be more cognizant of their future and really take into account the decisions that you make now, what are the impacts that will have on you into your years into the future and even on your you know, children and grandchildren, your uh, descendants as well. You know, for me, it's like a round trip uh, through culture because when I was, you know, grew up in the 60s, you know, Timothy Leary and the, was talking about instant gratification, drop out, tune in, and it was um, a complete uh, repudiation of the ethos of that time. And now this Generation Z, this new generation, is going going away from instant gratification mm. and saying we need actually hard money, we need a low uh, time preference, uh, we need uh, to build a future for ourselves, you know, using economics. It seems like a complete pendulum uh, switch shift. Yeah. yeah, paradigm shift or a different. Uh, so is is that you know because it seems like with negative rates and all these other catastrophes and with the mm. climate and politics that this generation Z. And the millennials, they are in trouble. They are in trouble. Uh, is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And I would tell you, even in Australia, there's been a long problem in recent years about housing affordability. Many people cannot afford to buy a place close enough to where they work. And so they are having to go to the bank of mum and dad, or they are basically having to lever up to their eyeballs in debt. And we're seeing these crazy stories of this, you know, oh, look, this 28-year-old who owns like 35 different properties, but really they're just leveraged out to the maxim, absolute maximum. And these people are not well-placed if interest rates were to rise. But, and, and, but then again, you sort of play that game back and forward because you don't know what will the government do. Will the government try to juice that thing again and just keep the rates low and bail out and so on? But ultimately, whatever happens, we sort of understand that most of this has been the root cause was fiat money to begin with. The easy money is what has caused all this kind of uh, shenanigans, if you will. And now we're all just trying to struggle to adapt and find a way to deal with the problems that have been introduced by government monetary intervention. 
So with the podcast, uh, Stefan, what's what? Where are you going with this? Where, where are you going to be in a year or two from now? What are the plans? The big plans? It's highly successful. I mean, people are always mentioning the the, the Stefan Levera podcast. I mean, it's like one of the top ones out there. So where are you? Where, you know, where are you going with this? Where are you going to be in a year or two? Well, thank you. Uh, I I really just try to. I'm trying to just reach more people and help them see Bitcoin from the way that what I call a Bitcoin Austrian perspective. And I'm hoping to just reach more people. I, I'm known for having some more technical level discussion from both from an economics and a technology point of view on Bitcoin. So I'm hoping to just keep increasing and improving the quality of the discussions. And hopefully, uh, obviously, it's nice to you know land, land big guests on the show as well. That's a big part of it too. But also just to make sure that I, you know, I'm also improving my own knowledge and I'm helping clarify and helping simplify things so that people who are busy, uh, ultimately people have families and jobs and so on, and hopefully my podcast can become a good resource for them that they can try to understand things from a way that kind of helps deprogram them from the garbage that they've been fed in their normal schools and normal universities and normal kind of mainstream media, financial press and that sort of thing. All right. Um, you know, talking about the technology here. So, what for the most, the average person, what do you, you discover to be the most uh, difficult piece of the tech stack for people mm -hmm. to kind of get their mind around? Because there, there are a, a lot of different considerations there. What, what do you find is the one thing for someone just watching this maybe for the first time that they they want to get into the technology? What's the one article you would refer them to? Mm, yeah. So. There was a great article by Nick Carter recently. I think it was called "A Most uh, a Peaceful uh, A Most Peaceful Revolution." I think that was a fantastic article. But I think a key point that I think a lot of people who are not so uh, experienced in Bitcoin uh, don't quite understand what they do is they tend to buy Bitcoin and leave it on an exchange. I think that's a big no-no. Mm -hmm. And really, the key point that as Bitcoiners, we want to encourage people to do is take ownership of their own keys. And that means typically buying a hardware wallet, such as the cold card, and uh, pulling it out of the exchange and sending it and holding it on your own, uh, in your own wallet under your own security. And obviously, there's a journey to that. And once you learn how to do that process of holding your own keys, and then the next step is learning how to run your own full node. But so again, the top three attributes of Bitcoin are what, in your mind, in your view? It's got a fixed supply, it's hard to confiscate, and it's easy to use. Okay, well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Stefan Levera, podcast, fantastic, look it up. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report, kaiserreport.com. Until next time, bye, y'all.